as a 10-year-old kid, I was at camp, and I was excited like every other kid that was out there. I was given a pillowcase and a flashlight, and I was told to be outside at dusk. So with our camp counselor in tow, a group of my friends and I went out there and sighted and anticipated because what we had heard up until that point was not about what we were going to do, but about the great prize that we were going to receive for the person who was able to capture the unthinkable. So we went outside, pillowcase, flashlight in tow, and there we knelt down and we listened intently as the camp director shared the details of what we were after, all in hopes of the great prize. And he leaned in and he said, boys, listen, there are snipes out there. And I need you to pay attention. You've got to be very aware. You've got to use your keen sight and your hearing and make sure you're ready and looking. And what you're going to do is you're going to sneak up. You're going to get quietly behind them. And as you do, when you flash the light in their eyes, they'll be frozen. But just for a second, and it's there that you take your bag and you throw it over their heads and you wrap them up and you tie it off and you bring it back here. But these guys are elusive. So you better be prepared. And for the person who brings the most snipes back by the end of the night, you will get the biggest prize. You imagine the excitement anticipation coming, pouring out of 10-year-old boys, bound and determined to get the biggest prize. We didn't even know what the prize was. We just knew that we had to have the biggest prize. We knew that we were athletic and talented, We were told that we had keen sight and keen hearing, and so we had to use these things in order to capture the snipe. But here's the thing, as we went out, and we were intentional, we were called to, uh, we we were encouraged to ask other people for clues. Hey, did you see any snipe? Yeah, I I think I heard him over here. And then we were encouraged to follow other groups to see where they were going, and we were encouraged to look for clues. We were digging in the ground and trying to find their tracks. We were encouraged to do all kinds of things, to go to all great lengths and measures in search of the snipe. And so there we are, flashlight, sleeping bag in hand, and we are following each other around, and we're asking each other, and all of a sudden you hear a rustle in the bush, and you look over, and there's a snipe. You've got your flashlight, and you're blinding each other. You go up, and you're, you're searching, and you're going in circles, and then, and then something happens. You're confident you saw a snipe, and your confidence leads you to begin running after the snipe. And when you run, others begin to run and follow suit, all in search of The snipe, which leads to the biggest prize you could imagine. But here's the thing. If you've never been snipe hunting, come see me after church. We'll go tonight. (laughs) Those of you laughing, it's because you've been snipe hunting. And you know that there is absolutely no such thing. It is a farce. It started in the 1800s, about 1840. It's a North American tradition. It was a game that adults would play on kids where with great anticipation they would get them together in search of this fictitious bird. And that if they found this bird, they would be rewarded richly. And I just wonder, as we kick off a brand new series entitled Nine, how many of us are chasing something that doesn't exist in this world? How many of us are chasing a culture 
and following signs and clues from the culture around us and asking other people from the culture where we can find what it is we think we're looking for that somehow isn't really there, but it's in search of a great prize. It's in search of fulfillment that if we just would search harder and look longer and more intentionally, more deliberately, that we could find the great prize, that we could be filled, and that's what we give our lives over to is in search of something that just does not exist. We end up where we are devoid of Jesus, chasing a fictitious place. And I don't mean geographically, I mean a place in our lives where we find ultimate fulfillment. And in the same way that the camp counselors find great humor in watching children run around in search of absolutely nothing, the enemy, Satan, finds great pride in watching us chase nothing in this world in hopes of finding fulfillment. We're starting a brand new series today entitled Nine, and I could not be any more excited about this series than I already am. I want to give you perhaps the most profound statement of this series that we're going to revisit every single week. This is why we're doing this series. I'd like you to write this down. This is the purpose of this series. We're going to learn about nine Beatitudes. Really, there's eight plus one, and we'll talk about that in a moment in Jesus' first recorded sermon. And in these nine Beatitudes, we're not going to look at these as as, uh, morals or ethics or values or things to aspire to that we somehow can do or accomplish on our own. What we will learn and determine over the next nine weeks together is that these Nine Beatitudes are attributes. They're attitudes that lead to action, which ultimately become attributes in the Christian life. Let me say that again. These nine Beatitudes are attitudes that lead to action. And over time, when we consistently apply these actions, they will become attributes for the Christian life. In other words... When you are describing someone, you will describe them by their stature. You'll describe them by the color of their hair, by the color of their eyes, by the size of their frame, by the way that they dress, by the way that they carry themselves, by maybe the the place that they're employed or who they're married to or where they went to school or how you know them. You will place some attributions on someone based on how they live their life. And in the Christian life, these nine Beatitudes will become more than attitudes. These are attitudes that will lead to actions and that when people look at us and begin to define and describe us, they will become attributes that lead our life. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to learn about how we don't have to chase this infamous cultural prize that does not exist, but we are instead going to look at some countercultural things and address ultimate fulfillment and the greatest prize in Jesus, not in some useless search for significance that is absolutely not there. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at CBC, and we're glad that you joined us today. If you're new here, I am especially grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. It is the first Sunday in June, and we also have a huge barbecue in support of our children going to camp this summer, so you chose the right day to be here. Welcome. If you are new and you're joining us online today, either 9, 15, or 11, we want to welcome you as well. It's not lost on us that you guys are following what God is doing here in our community, and we are grateful that you would consider being a part of it. Let me invite you up front to grab your Bibles 
and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't own a Bible, please let me encourage you to raise your hand. And one of our ushers is going to bring you a Bible. And this Bible is a gift from us to you. It is yours to have and to keep. We do encourage you to bring a Bible with you each week so that you can follow along, so that you can take notes, so that you can highlight some things, so that you can write down some questions, so that you have this resource available to you throughout the entire week so that you can look back on it and prepare for it. We truly believe that the Word of God is active, that the Word of God is inerrant, perfect, free from flaw, and that the Word of God is alive, and that the more we engage with the Word of God, the more we encounter the Word of God, the more it becomes alive in us. So, turn to the book of Matthew. If you're not familiar with where the book of Matthew is, you can either find the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible, and it should give you a page number as a reference to where Matthew is, or let me encourage you to go just a little more than halfway through your Bible in the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's going to be a collection of names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also known as the Gospels. It is the first Gospel in Scripture. We are going to be here for the next nine weeks. So by the time you're done with this series, your Bible, if you were to drop it, should fall open to Matthew chapter 5. We're actually going to begin today in Matthew 4, 23, and we're going to study through 5, 3, the first of nine Beatitudes today. But as we do, let's begin preparing our hearts and minds to encounter God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to engage with you through your Word, and I pray that as we jump in now, that we would jump in with hearts ready, with minds open, with ears to hear, and with attitudes to receive. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we are faithful to preaching with authenticity and integrity, that you would do the work that only you are able to do. God, I pray that as your word goes out, it will not return void, but that we would encounter you and it would lead to life change, both this life and eternal life. God, enrich in us, enlighten us, inspire us, motivate us, and move us to be more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's about 30 years old. He's new on the scene. He's gone through the temptation. He has begun to call his disciples. He has been baptized. He is now traveling to towns and villages throughout the region of Galilee. The region of Galilee is a collection of over 200 villages and towns, and it it makes up over 300,000 people. Jesus is going to go, and he is going to invest himself in these small communities. He's going to invest invest himself in three things. He's going to invest himself in teaching the word of God. He's going to invest himself in proclaiming the gospel or the good news, why he has been sent, what he is here to do, and he is going to invest himself in meeting the physical needs of the people in the surrounding communities. As Jesus is preaching, as he is teaching, as he is healing, word is beginning to spread. It's spreading like wildfire from two different venues, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But as word begins to spread, people are coming from all over Asia Minor. They're coming by foot. They're coming by boat. They're coming by donkey. They're coming in crowds. They're coming individually. There are people who are not a part of Asia Minor that are coming from outside even that community to see Jesus with their own eyes, to hear Jesus with their own ears. He is growing in notoriety. He is growing in intimacy. He is creating a crowd. And in the crowd, there are religious leaders. And in the crowd, there are men. And in the crowd, there are women. And in the crowd, there are disciples. And in the crowd, there are Jews and Gentiles. There is an eclectic group. What I'm about to read to you, friends, I want you to think about high school. I want you to think about your freshman year of high school, your sophomore year of high school, your junior year of high school, and your senior year of high school. 
The reason that that is significant is because what I know to be true of every high schooler I have ever interacted with is that high school tends to be a four-year period where they are discovering who they are and they are in search of significance. Let me say that again. High school tends to be the place over a four-year span of time where people are, 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 are searching for significance and discovering who they are. And they do that in a variety of ways. They do that through learning. They do that through interacting with others. They do that through inviting people to speak into their lives. They do that through practice. They do that through a variety of means and measures. And what happens then, if you go to a high school, especially the high school that I came up in, in in inner city Portland, there were thousands of student body uh, members, and it was eclectic. There was red, yellow, black, white, male, female, tall, short, big, small, athletes, band members, non-athletes or band members. It was everything. We had everything. It was a melting pot that created this community. Even though we came from our own backgrounds, our own faith backgrounds, our own family backgrounds, our own, our own friends, everything. When we came together under the umbrella of whatever high school you went to, it was a melting pot. You had common interests at that point. Jesus is speaking to a very eclectic crowd of people that come from all over the place. And they are there under the common umbrella of discovering who they are. They are in search for significance. For the religious community, the voice of God had fallen deaf for 400 years. They had practiced religion, but they had not heard from God. They had not heard a word from God or from a prophet. There was, absolute, uh, uh, there was an absolute void in relationship. And so they're going through religious motions in hopes of pleasing God and in hopes of gaining some salvation or some significance in their life. For the non-religious, these are individuals who had multiple gods. They were polytheistic. They were individuals who worshipped idols. They worshipped uh, esherpoles. They, they worshipped money. They worshipped goddesses. They worshipped sex. They worshipped relationships. They worshipped all kinds of things. And then there are those who are not even interested in any kind of worship that are just there. These are the agnostics or the atheists who may believe in something but they don't really know what it is and they're not interested in finding out more. They just want to make the most of their life that they can while they're here on earth. And so in search for significance, they've got their pillowcase and their flashlight and they are searching the world over trying to discover the ultimate prize, trying to find the ultimate prize. And Jesus now is going to show up on the scene after spending countless hours investing himself in small towns and villages and communities, and he is going to preach a common message to the most eclectic group of people you could imagine. As a public orator, as a communicator who does this and who's done this for 21 years, you learn to study your audience. You learn to know your culture. You learn the ins and outs. Billy Graham, perhaps one of the most, by far the greatest evangelist of the 20th and 21st century, would go in advance of his crusade and he would study the newspapers for the area that he was speaking in. He would, in other words, he would learn about their culture and their context so that when Billy Graham would speak, he could correlate the message to the ministry in the ministry to the men and women that he was speaking to. Jesus did not have that luxury and he did not need that luxury. Jesus came with the greatest message. He is the greatest message. The good news, the fulfillment of prophecy for thousands of years foretold that he came once and for all to do away with sin and offer salvation and sanctification through him. And he's going to preach this message to a group of men, women, religious, non-religious, black, white, every ethnicity you could imagine. He's going to preach a message that is going to address them all about the search of significance. Everybody finds values. Everybody finds ethics. 
and morals that they want to apply to their lives, some sort of a moral code that they want to live within. Jesus is going to take the values and the standards and the ethics and the morals of cultural relevance and he's going to flip them upside down. He's going to smack them around and he's going to send them away. He's going to address them head on and he is going to give us nine attitudes, not ethics, not values, not moral code or standard. He is going to talk about nine attitudes at the beginning of what we know as three chapters, which is the first public sermon he'll ever give that is recorded in Matthew's gospel. Nine attitudes about Christian living. These attitudes lead to action and these actions when done over time will become attributes for Christian living. Okay, you ready? ready. Let me breathe for a second. (laughs) Verse 23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Jesus is going into the synagogues very purposefully. The synagogues are the epicenter of these small villages. The synagogue is the epicenter of these small towns. It is a social place. It is the avenue, the venue for people to get together to worship. It is the avenue that people come together to pray. It is a place of collective study. It is a place of perpetual relationships People came to the synagogue as the main gathering place. And Jesus, knowing culture and context, shows up on the scene in these small villages and towns. And there he does three things. He teaches, he preaches, and he heals. And then it says this in verse 24. News about him spread. Hard stop. This is so significant for us to pay attention to. News about him spread. When there is something new that shows up in Blair... No mistake about it, news travels. Yesterday, Stacy, my wife, and I, uh, with no power, I went into panic about my coffee. And I thought to myself, maybe scooters wasn't affected. Maybe they have a generator. I don't know. Stacy, I'm going now. So we jumped in my truck and we began to weave our way through the city of Blair. And what I found fascinating was at 7.15 in the morning, the streets were covered not only with debris from the storm, but the streets were covered with people who were walking around the community doing two things. Talking about what had happened, pointing fingers, looking at the devastation and disaster, and people who were being neighborly, who were demonstrating the Christian love that they are called to have for one another by picking up debris for others. We drove around the community, and as we were in scooters, we're standing there, and I placed my order for the Burundi cold brew, extra cream. And as I'm standing there, my wife gets some foo-foo drink. Uh, We're we're, we're there, and uh, I'm standing around, and people around me are talking about what happened. They're talking about the storm. News spreads like wildfire in smaller communities and towns and villages. News about Jesus spread. Make no mistake about it, when you come to a, a, a relationship with Jesus, when people find out about you or find out about the community of faith you're involved in or find out, here you go, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, but I do want to make a comparison. Jesus arguably is the most polarizing figure that the world 
world has ever known. I might arguably be the most polarizing figure that Blair has ever known. And when you get a polarizing person in a community, people take notice. They watch online. They check out social media. They want to talk about it on social media. They can read the Enterprise. I, I've been in there a few times with articles that I've written and different things. I'm in there and I don't even know. My kids are in there and I never gave permission. I don't even know how that happens. Like, we're just, we're in there. People want to know what's going on. And whenever there's a buzz, people talk. And when they talk, a couple of things happen. There's accurate truth and there's inaccurate speculation. This is what's taking place with Jesus. It says news spread about Jesus. So when something exciting is taking place in a community, every one of us is going to be involved in one of two ways. And here's what I want to share with you. Are you part of sharing the gospel or giving in to gossip? Are you part of sharing the gospel with how you live your life and the words that come out of your mouth? Or are you prone to gossip? People are talking about what God is doing at our church. I want you to be very clear about the miracles and signs and wonders that are taking place here at CBC. The revival that is God's hand moving and sweeping through CBC. The 249 first-time commitments to Christ. The 700-plus Bibles that we've given out. The $60,000 raised for missions last year alone. God is doing tremendous things through CBC. And there's a lot of word that's being spread throughout the community of Blair. So we're going to do one of two things. We are either going to be a part of spreading the gospel or perpetuating gossip. I hope that how you live your life and the words that you use when you talk about your church and take no, I want to make no mistake about this. This is your church. You are the body of Christ. We are a community. January next year, first sermon series of the year, it takes a village. I cannot wait. In fact, let's just pray now and we'll start that series. I'm so excited because we're going to learn together about this being our church and our responsibility in our community and what God has called us to individually and collectively. It's going to be awesome. Make no mistake about it. When you're involved with the movement of God like this, people are talking. And you're either going to share the gospel with how you live your life and the words you use or you're going to perpetuate gossip. Don't be a part of the gossip, my friends. Live the gospel. News about Jesus is spreading. And it's spreading as far as Syria. And people soon began to hear him. And they're bringing to him all who are sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them. That's significant. Would you circle the fact that Jesus healed them? Verse 25, large crowds. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee... The Decapolis, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. This is the first point that I want to make today that we've got to hold on to, and that is this. Jesus was faithful with the few before he was famous with a following. Jesus was faithful with the few before he was famous with a following. Far too often people want the following. Far too often people come, and I know this in pastoral circles, I have been guilty of this myself, where I show up on the scene and I expect to open the doors and people to flood in to create a following of what is going on. It happens in social media. We put a post out there and we cannot wait. We go back, literally, we refresh our phone over and over again to see the number of people that have liked it or that have commented on it or that have loved it or that have shared our post. People want a following. But Jesus wasn't about the following. He was first. 
He was first about being faithful in the small things. Let me explain. Jesus is an unknown entity in this time. He is a humble carpenter's son from Nazareth. At least that's what the community believes. Jesus does not just show up on the side of a mountain and begin to preach and have large crowds following him. Jesus begins his public ministry privately with people. You see, it says that Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, over 200 towns and villages, that Jesus interacted with essentially 300,000 people. And he did three things. Long before he ever took the pulpit, Jesus was teaching the word of God, he was proclaiming the gospel message, and he was meeting people's physical needs. Jesus very intentionally and strategically was meeting the felt needs of the community where they were at so that he could introduce them to their real need for community with Christ. Jesus began behind the scenes. He began by stacking chairs and pulling weeds. Jesus began by hanging out with people in community. And it wasn't until after Jesus had gone through these towns and these villages, building relationships and establishing rapport, which led to respect, that crowds began to follow him. Jesus was faithful with the few before he ever became famous and had a following. If our church is going to make a kingdom impact, far-reaching Blair and Washington County, to the ends of the earth. It will not happen because you have a polarizing pastor and we open up our doors and I begin to share. Will that be a part of the equation? I sure hope so. I would be honored and and praise God if he would use the teachings that we do, not just me, church, but that our teaching team does in proclaiming the gospel with authenticity and integrity in a way that we can adapt, adopt, and apply to our lives that leads to life change. But the community of faith, that is CBC, will grow when we start by establishing relationships in our community. It will start by us investing in the lives of others. It will start by us traveling to towns and villages, teaching with our words and our actions, proclaiming the gospel with our words and our actions, and meeting people's physical needs. Here's a little known fact. Study the scriptures, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find a place where Jesus doesn't first meet a physical need before he presents the gospel. Jesus always met a physical need of some sort before he presented the gospel. Jesus was in the business of relationships and establishing community. We have to be in the business of relationships and establishing community. Jesus was faithful with the few before he was famous with a following. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is going to lead into the Sermon on the Mount. One day as he, Jesus, saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Let me read this again because it leads to my second point today. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, circle the word crowds, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered, would you circle the word disciples, around him. And he began to teach them. And here's my second point, which is really a question. Are you a part of the crowd or are you committed to Christ? It's entirely possible to show up and be a non-participative 
observer. It is entirely possible to show up at church week in and week out, to sit in the pews, to stand there and to watch, to observe, to see, to take in, and be assumed that you are one committed to Christ. But there are some characteristics, some attributes, if you will, of those who are truly committed to Christ. If you are not active in community with one another, if you are not living out your faith, if you are not working to become fully devoted followers of Jesus, if you are not in constant community with Christ, if you are not learning to be more Christ-like, dying to self, living as new creations, and we'll talk about these attributes over the next nine weeks, if you are not intentionally working to change your attitude, which leads to new action and ultimately new attributes, then I have to ask the question, are you merely a part of the crowd or are you a fully devoted follower of Christ? There were crowds that were gathered there interested in Jesus. They were interested in what was going on. They were not interested in changing their lives necessarily, but they were interested in what others were doing. Their other interests were more important. They were interested in their relationships. They were interested in their finances. They were interested in their religions. They were interested in their homes. They were interested in their possessions, in their retirement. They were interested in doing things their way, the way that they had always done them. And for far too long, and by far too many people, there were way too many people more interested in religion than they were in a relationship with Jesus. And so let's never confuse a crowd for fully devoted followers of Christ. It's possible to be standing in a crowd and not even like what you hear. I've been to concerts like that. When I was a youth pastor several years in a row, I went to Wilmore, Kentucky, went to Ichthus, huge Christian concert. And I would sit through a concert of a style of music that I could not like any less than I did just so I had good seats at the next concert for the music that I really wanted to be a part of. People will actually sit through things that they don't like just to see what's going on. They want to see what this is all about. I don't pretend that every one of you here this morning likes everything we do. But you're here because, I mean, it's pretty intriguing. My prayer is that you encounter Christ and your life has changed forever because that's the only reason I'm here. That's why we exist, to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. So if you're here begrudgingly, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will get a hold of your heart, soften you up, make you like dough, reshape you, mold you, make you. And as you fully surrender your life to Jesus, you'll never be the same. You're a nurse. You know CPR. If I drop you, just come up and bring me back. Bring me back. Are you a part of the crowd or are you truly committed to Christ? Let me give you some metrics just to think about. If you were to look at your check registry, go online right now, look at your bank statements, what does that say about your faith in Jesus? Do you spend your money like you're a part of the crowd or do you spend your money like you're committed to Christ? Husbands, I'm going to talk to you for a minute. Does the way you treat your wife demonstrate that you're just a part of the crowd going through the motions of marriage? Or like Jesus, when the word of God says, husband, love your wife like Jesus loves the church. And if you know anything about scripture, then you know that he gave his life up for the church. Does your marriage... Does your marriage clearly display that you are a committed Christian or that you're just a part of the crowd? 
I know I beat this one a lot, but I'm going to say it again. Your social media, the things that you're talking about, the things that you're posting, the things that you're liking, the things that you're resharing, are they demonstrative of you being a part of the crowd? Or is everything you share, overtly or not, indicative of someone who's committed to Christ? The way that you're involved in this church Does the time that you give, the energy that you give, the effort that you give, and the resources that you give to this community of faith that you're called to, and make no mistake about it, every Christian is called to be a part of a community of faith. Does does the way you invest yourself in the community of faith in the local church dictate or determine or display that you are a part of the crowd? You're just here to observe you're a CEO, Christmas, Easter, and one other occasion kind of a person? Or that you're committed to Christ? Every one of you here this morning is one or the other. You're either a part of the crowd or you're committed to Christ. Every one of us. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside, he sat down. His disciples gathered around him. His disciples who had abandoned their families to follow Jesus. His disciples who had abandoned their vocations to follow Jesus. His disciples who had abandoned their physical wealth to follow Jesus. His disciples who had abandoned their own expectations of life to follow Jesus were sitting at his feet. Are you standing at a distance at the bottom of the mountain or are you at the feet of the master? And he began to teach him. And here's what he taught. Verse 3 begins the first of nine beatitudes. Really, eight plus one. He's going to reiterate the ninth. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How many of you in the crowd, you hear someone say, God blesses you when you're poor. You say, well, that was good. And you walk away. This was so countercultural. Everybody in this community was taught that there's a, 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 there's a social sect, there's a financial sect, there's a group of individuals that their whole livelihood is determined based on what they've done for themselves. And financial gain is significant. They work tirelessly. I, I just had a meeting recently with a couple who are going to do a three-year missionary journey to China with crew. And I listened to them, and one of the things that they shared in their story is how in China, it is very, very, very difficult because of the male-to-female ratio for a male to find a wife in China. It's very difficult. And as we leaned in and learned more, what we found out is that the reason why wealth is so prominent and prevalent in China is because all the men are taught from a very, very, very early age That if you want to be something in your life, then it's about your dynasty, your legacy, passing on the name. And the only way that that happens is if you find a wife. And the only men in China that have wives are those that are wealthy financially. That can contribute not only to her, but to her family. And this perpetuates a problem of significance where they will search out and they will work their entire lives tirelessly, educating themselves, gaining experience, all so they can get further and further and further ahead, all in hopes of getting enough money so that they can buy, essentially, a wife. Jesus is speaking to a culture that is not dissimilar. That they have seen what the wealthy get and what the poor are subjected to. And every one of them wants in their own right to be wealthy financially. And they work hard, tirelessly, putting in the effort, the relationships, 
the education so that they can get ahead financially in life. They're concerned about their retirement. They're concerned about their savings accounts. They're concerned about what they have, their possessions. They're concerned about the clothes that they wear. Purple was a linen that they would use that was indicative of royalty. They were concerned about the way that they looked. If you were a little overweight, it meant that you were wealthy. You had more food than others and it was considered a sign of beauty. The way that they wore jewelry was all indicative of wealth and getting ahead. How many of us are so consumed and caught up with possessions and material things of this world that we give ourselves exhaustively, we give ourselves exhaustively chasing around the snipes of this world, putting more possessions in our bags that leave us empty, putting more people in our way, like relationships that are devastated along the way that we use as stepping stones to get where we want to get. And then Jesus shows up and he says, listen, you've heard it said, That you're blessed when you're filthy rich. But I'm telling you, blessed are you when you are poor in spirit. The word blessed, in the original Greek language, it means fulfilled or happy. The word beatitude from the original Latin means a a, a state of being. A bee, you can put a line right down the middle, an attitude. It is a way of being. So Jesus is going to introduce these beatitudes, these cultural shifts, these cultural changes in the first one. And he uses it very intentionally to get everybody's attention because everybody is concerned about getting ahead in society. Everybody wants the next best thing, the next biggest car, the next biggest house, the next biggest boat, the next biggest vacation, the next biggest pay raise, the next biggest promotion. Everybody is consuming their lives with trying to get ahead. And Jesus says, blessed are you. You've heard it said, but I am telling you, blessed are you, complete are you, happy are you, fulfilled are you, only when you become poor. When you become spiritually poor. Because then you'll experience the fullness of your faith and what Christ has for you. In other words, it, doesn't, it isn't until you file spiritual bankruptcy and declare that you just cannot do it on your own that you will ever experience the fullness of your faith. This faith that we have is not about works. One of the lies that is perpetuated is that when someone sees in scripture what is known as human responsibility, that we make a decision to follow Jesus and it's up to us to continue in that relationship. And if we don't, we can choose to willfully walk away from our relationship. One of the lies perpetuated about this system of theology is they think that we're all about works. And I want to tell you something. I want to dispel a myth right now. I want to tell you I am all about works. I'm absolutely all about works. I'm about works. I'm about works. I am about works. Do you know why? Because when you shift your attitude and change your actions, works becomes an attribute of the Christian life. Works doesn't save you. Works never saved anybody. There's not a big enough attitude or enough actions or attributes that can ever save you. We're saved by grace God's riches at Christ's expense, not by works so that none of us can talk about ourselves and what we've done. But you better believe that if you are a born-again believer, you're not just a part of the crowd, but you are a fully devoted Christian, then works is going to be a part of your everyday life. Works is going to be a part of your everyday language. Works is going to be a part of your everyday thoughts. 
Yesterday, church, I was so proud. I was so, so, so proud. I was, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't able to be a part of cleaning up the community. I, I had to go, I had to drive seven hours, three and a half hours to Kansas City to pick up my son to come back and surprise his sister uh, who had her big dance recital. 37 dances after two and a half hours is what, uh, it, was, it was amazing. <laughs> And so because I had to do that, I wasn't able to be a part of the community cleanup. But let me tell you what I was blown away by. I was blown away by the number of people that call CBC their home that were walking from house to house helping with chainsaws in hand and rakes in hand, cleaning up the debris of their neighbors. Blown away. So proud of you. If you were a part of helping anybody clean up yesterday, as your pastor, you hear me say this as though I'm talking to you directly. I am so proud of you. On behalf of your church, way to go. Because when you live out your faith, people will become curious. And when they become curious, they might just follow the crowd. And when they follow the crowd, they might end up at church. When they end up at church, they might hear the gospel. Well, not if they come here, they will hear the gospel. And it'll be an opportunity to change their life forever. Amazing. Amazing. God blesses those who are poor. Because they realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Two things I need to say about this. One of the things we get so wrong in scripture is the idea and the understanding of the kingdom of heaven being ours. When you hear that, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, what do you, what do you immediately think about? You think about eternal life and when you die that you're going to be in the, seated in the, throne, you know, in the throne room with God and glory and angels and hanging out and streets of gold and crystal and all the big house where lots and lots of room, lots of food, football. If it weren't so, then you know, audio adrenaline would have never said so. You think about all that stuff. You think about it as future, not present tense. But then you take this and you correlate it to Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a present tense. In other words, when you become spiritually bankrupt and fully dependent on Jesus, then you who are poor in spirit, you will inherit the kingdom of God, which is active and alive and at work right here and now. The sovereignty of God is alive and well. The, the, the power and the presence of God is alive and well. The attributes of God are alive and well. It is not some future telling that you hold on to and look forward to. But when you fully surrender your life to Jesus, when you become fully dependent on him, when you become spiritually bankrupt and you invite him in to love and lead your life, you can experience the things of heaven right now. Amen. Not only can you, you will. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. a guarantee. So here's the big so what today. Here's the big so what today. In order for us to experience this attitude, which leads to a change in action and ultimately becomes an attribute in our lives, we have to constantly move away from self-dependency and always towards soul sufficiency. As long as you're trying to do it yourself, you will never fully enable God to do it for you. When you recognize that you can't do it by yourself or at all without the power and the presence of Jesus, the dynamo pneuma, the Holy Spirit in your life, leading, guiding, directing, empowering, and encouraging, and inspiring. When you come to the place of total surrender, total depravity, saying, Lord, I am not able, but you are. (laughs) then your attitude about how you think about yourself and the things of this world will begin to change. 
And when your attitude begins to change, it'll lead to change in your actions. And when your actions change, over time they become attributes. And the world will begin to identify you, not as you once were, but as you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Am I making sense this morning? I am begging you to come over the next nine weeks. Today was just setting the framework for what I am absolutely convinced that God is going to use this year to change our community. Not just our church, our community. But it begins with making a commitment to be here. So, every one of us is created for significance in life. Every one of us is in search of significance. We all want the prize. We all want the big prize. We all want to to have something that means something in our lives. And we're willing to do anything to get it. We're going to go and we're going to look for clues. And we're going to search the world over. And we're going to ask for counsel. And we're going to look to see what other people are doing. And when they start running, we're going to run after it. Thinking that the, the prize is just in front of them. And we want a piece of the prize. We want a piece of the prize. But I am here to tell you this morning that as long as we continue to search the world over... To find fulfillment, we will always be left empty. But when you come to the place where you become fully surrendered to Jesus and say, all that I am and all that I have, beginning with my expectations, are yours, then you will experience the kingdom of God and the fruit of the fulfillment that comes from that, that will fill your bag to overflowing and it will begin to spill out and making a mess all over the place on others. You making a mess on others? What kind of mess? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've been a part of the crowd, you've been searching the world over for significance, but you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, and you want to know what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, you want to know what it means to experience the kingdom of God, his power, his authority, his sovereignty right now, not just some far off distant place like some, some, some lion, the witch in the wardrobe where you're going to go into some hidden door and it's going to open up and there all of a sudden it's going to be bliss. If you want to know what it's like this side of heaven right now, you're tired of chasing the world for empty imitations, going from one empty well after the next, from one broken marriage to the next, from one bad financial doing to the next, from one stupid social media post to the next. If you're tired of searching the world for significance and you know like you know like you know that you no longer want to be a part of the crowd but you want to know Jesus you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as a fully devoted follower of Jesus if you've been coming to church and you've been a part of the crowd for far too long and you need to surrender your life to Jesus right now I'm going to give you that opportunity I'm going to give you the opportunity to commit your life to Christ and say Father all that I am and all that I have I am giving it to you I'm spiritually becoming bankrupt I'm becoming bankrupt so that I can move away from self-dependency because the way I've been doing it myself is not working and I'm going to move into soul sufficiency. And soul, I mean that you would fill my soul because when I rely on you for soul sufficiency, you will guide me, you will lead me, you will direct me, you will fulfill me and regardless of whatever circumstances I have in this life, you will be enough. It will be an attitude change and that attitude change will lead to an action change and that action change will over time grow into attributes and these are the attributes that I want. I'm tired of feeling empty and lifeless and broken and I want you Jesus I want all of you Jesus if that is you this morning then do not walk out of these doors and into that barbecue without giving your life to Jesus now when you do we're going to be right here 
ready to receive you and walk with you. You're not alone in this. You're not called to do this by yourself. We're called to life and ministry together collectively. We're going to walk with you hand in hand. Committed to Christ together. <laughs> this is why I got to preach with notes. I'm going to tell a story I didn't plan on telling, but this is important. Uh, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to coach wrestling at Burnsville High School. Burnsville is, uh, the high school is one mile away from the church that I, that I uh, was senior pastor at. And I actually get to go and preach there coming up. First time in two years. I'm so excited that I get to go and preach there. It'll be awesome. But I believe in what Jesus did. I believe in investing in the community. I believe in investing in the, the crowd, in individual lives before there's a big crowd. And so I required my entire staff and our elders to get involved in the community. One of the ways that I did it was I, I went to volunteer for wrestling and lo and behold, I ended up getting offered a job. And so as a senior pastor of a church, I ended up becoming the co-head wrestling coach of Burnsville High School and the head coach of the, the kids program. And so I didn't get to preach with the Bible in hand, but I got to preach with how I live my life. And over time, the head wrestling coach, the co-head wrestling coach, Zach Wilson, um, who became one of my best friends. Zach is a stellar athlete. He actually... Uh, ended up, he, he was a multi-state champion wrestler in Iowa. They went, he actually was drafted in the NFL. Uh, he played a year for uh, the Chicago Bears. And then with the Atlanta Falcons, he was a linebacker behind Brian Urlacher. Got hurt, blew up his shoulder. The dude has been incredibly successful, everything this side of heaven. He's got just blessed him. He's had a job where he's done very well for himself. He's got a beautiful, wonderful wife. They've got great kid. But he didn't know Jesus. And over time, just, to, just being there with him, just investing in him, I never, I, never, I never beat him over the head with the Bible. But I invited him into my life, and I invited myself into his life, and let him use my truck. And two days after I bought my truck, his Traeger broke through the back window of my truck. $700 later, I didn't make him pay for it. My insurance did. I'm not, trust me, I would have made him pay for it. <laughs> I had free glass replacement. We invited him to dinner. And we just began to build relationships with them. Uh, Stacy, you haven't even heard this yet. My buddy Zach texted me yesterday. He moved to Washington State a year and a half ago. And he said, hey, uh, just want to let you know that I'm going to be baptized tomorrow. I literally, I've been driving to Kansas City and I, I call him on the phone and I said, bro, what? And he said, hey man, I've been meaning to tell you but at 10.30 tomorrow, I'm going to get baptized. And when they were recording the video about when you gave your life to Jesus and the biggest influencer, I talked about you and how you led me to Jesus, not with any one prayer, but how you lived your life. You see, we both coached wrestling, but your approach was very different than mine. We both lived our lives, but your approach to life is very different than mine. And and I just saw something in you that, that, I, that I wanted. I never got to go to your church in Minnesota because I was, you know, I just was afraid. But when my wife and I moved to Washington, we got pregnant and we realized we wanted our son to grow up with some morals. And so we started going to this church. And what turned out to be much more than morals, I realized my need for Jesus and I gave my life to Jesus. Amen. And I'm going to be baptized tomorrow. And I said, you idiot. And he said, that's not what I was expecting to hear. <laughs> and 
And I said, bro, if you would have told me you were being baptized, I would have had somebody else preach for me. I would have been on the first plane out to Seattle and I would have stood right there in the front row clapping all the way for you. And I'm just, I'm crying like a baby in my truck. It's an example of somebody who started as a part of the crowd but through watching consistent living in others, not just me, but others, they gave their life to Christ. Guys, every one of us has that ability. Where are you involved in the community that is replicating Christ? I want you to bow your eyes, bow your eyes, bow your heads, close your eyes. And let's, let's pray. Let's pray together this morning. If you're here this morning, and this is brand new to you, I'm going to give you an invitation to respond to the gospel. If you've been coming to church for a while, and you realize that you're, you've been little more than just a part of the crowd, but you haven't been a fully devoted follower of Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And for those of you who are committed to Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to continue to practice this change in attitude, which will lead to actions and ultimately attributes. This morning, I want to ask you with your heads bowed so that you can reflect and with your eyes closed, I want, you to, I want to ask you just to pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, speak to my heart. And then I want to be really clear about this. If you're here this morning and you have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you're here this morning and you've been a part of the crowd but you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus, today is a day of reckoning that you get to make a decision to fully surrender, to become spiritually bankrupt so that you can experience the fullness, the be attitude, the be like to be spiritually bankrupt, to move away from self-dependency into soul-sufficiency. If that's you this morning, I'm going to pray with you. We're going to pray this prayer together as you give your life to Jesus, and then I'm going to give you some next steps. So here's what I want you to do. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed so that you can reflect, I'm just going to invite you to take a step of faith and raise your hand so I can pray with you. Please, if that's you this morning and you are ready to give your life to Jesus, please raise your hand so I can identify you and pray with you. Amen. I see that hand. Amen. Amen. I see that hand. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I see that. I see that hand. Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. 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 Just a second more. Just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit working in your life. You've never given your life to Jesus. Today's the day. You're tired of being a part of the crowd. You're ready to move into being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I want you to pray this prayer with me. The three hands that I saw go up. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes that have kept me from you. I've tried to do this on my own, and I can't. I believe in you. I believe that you gave us your son to die in my place, to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and to lead me to live a life that is fully devoted to you. And Father, I pray that you would give me the ability to live the life that you're calling me to live as I fully surrender to you. I'm all in, God. I'm all in. All that I am and all that I have is yours. I surrender to you, Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us who are here this morning and hearing this word from you, I pray that you would empower us, inspire us to think about this week 
these attitudes that we have about life, these attitudes that we have, what we're chasing after. And I pray that as we study this, that you will begin to change our attitudes and our attitudes would lead to a change in action. And over time with consistent behaviors, it would lead to attributes. Father, I surrender this to you. And for our church, God, may we be more and more like Jesus, his example of ministry. May we begin by being the literal hands and feet of Jesus, meeting physical needs in our community. Help us both now and in the days ahead, to do the will that you've called us to, Father, I pray. Amen. June 3rd, 2018, at our 915 service, three people, three people raised their hand in full surrender to Jesus to give themselves to Jesus Christ. Church. That is why we exist. To be a community where people can encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Don't ever let that get old. Don't ever let that get old. Three people just gave their life to Jesus. Don't ever let that get old. The people who raise their hands, I just, uh, you know who you are. I want to encourage you. As soon as our service is over, outside these double doors, make a hard right. Our connection center is there. We've got amazing connections leaders, volunteers, and staff that are waiting to meet you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to celebrate. We want to help you with next steps. We want to help you start growing in your faith. We want to help you know what it means to fully surrender your life to Jesus continually. The rest of you, did I just say we're just starting? This is just getting going. Buckle up. You get eight more weeks of this. Amen.